Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. All right, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Andrew Powell, the CEO and co-founder of Learn to Win. With an education background from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, an MBA from Stanford University Graduate School of Business, Andrew and Sasha Seymour, who both made Forbes 30 Under 30, founded Learn to Win in 2018. Learn to Win is a software platform that unlocks last mile learning for organizations. That last mile learning is the critical operational knowledge unique to every team. Last mile training drives 80% of job performance, but it's unique to every organization and can't be bought off the shelf. It lives in your experts' heads. It's taught informally, if at all. Working with hundreds of customers, fast food chains, up-leveling workers on drive through management, NFL teams training on playbooks and scouting reports, tech companies onboarding new engineers, pharmaceutical companies readying sales reps for new product releases, and even Air Force pilots drilling on emergency procedures. Learn to Win is a company making waves across numerous businesses, and here to tell us Learn to Win's story and his own journey is Andrew. So Andrew, thank you for being here, my friend. Thanks, Drew. Glad to be here. So we took kind of our stab at understanding your story and, and your company, but in your own words, how'd this thing get started? So Sasha and I started Learn to Win back in 2018 through a combo of my interest in education technology and then his experience as a college basketball player. We saw an opportunity to really improve the way that athletes prepared for games uh, from all the mental angles. So playbook, game plans, scouting reports, um, everything that a, a basketball player or football player or hockey player needs to know uh, before they go and compete. Uh, and uh, I was really interested in essentially how technology could drive more effective, faster ways of learning. And so the first version of the product really was Duolingo for learning playbooks. It was like, uh, instead of just getting a paper playbook uh, with all the plays for, say, the UNC football team, um, you would get this uh, mobile app-based experience that was highly interactive with videos, images. It would quiz you about if you know the defense lines up in cover two, what are we going to try to do to exploit the boundary and all these kind of questions that a coach would would share with players. But um, creating just a digital learning experience for um, players to more effectively learn, to give data and analytics to coaching staffs about you know what their starters knew, what the potential pinch points would be in the game. Um, and then just create that sort of uh, mental competitive advantage for teams. Um, so that was the first version of the product in 2018, 2019. Um, since that time, we've expanded into a bunch of different industries, but the, um, the acute pain point that Sasha saw being a basketball player at North Carolina combined with some of my interests in education technology is uh, really how it all got started. It's an amazing idea. It sounds, at least in my novice head, it sounds incredibly complicated to actually deliver on what you said. How did you... How did you go about knowing how to build that program that could do all the things that you just mentioned? Well, so we got started really simply, which was, uh, and, and when I talk to other founders who want to get started, I often say, just build the simplest possible version of what you're envisioning and then show it to somebody who could be a potential customer or advisor and see if they get interested. And then that starts kind of a riffing process. So um, at, at the time, uh, Coach Fedora, Larry Fedora was the head coach at North Carolina on the football team. And so we um, put together just a PowerPoint slide deck of what I envisioned the product eventually look like. And it was very simple. It was kind of take the learning experience of Duolingo, but sub in football content instead of language content. Um, and we put together 
I don't know, 15 or 20 slides and made a little clickable prototype of that PowerPoint and then went and uh, through some of Sasha's connections, we were able to set up a meeting with him to pitch him this harebrained idea. And uh, so we, we showed him the, you know, the app, but it was just PowerPoint slides um, and said, hey, you think if we built this, would it be useful for teaching the plays? And he thought, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you guys build this, like, we'll definitely use it. Um, hmm. I feel like this could be really useful uh, for our team. And um, once we had that conversation, it suddenly shifted from just this like idea in our head to, okay, we actually need to build something here. How do we go about building it? Um, and that's when we started looking into, you know, who did we know who was a software engineer? What sort of development shops might we work with? We worked with a group out of North Carolina um, to build the first version of the product. And then it kind of spiraled from there of uh, getting more customers and then starting to sell the product and figuring out price points. And, you know, a couple of years later, we were in close to 100 college programs, but it, it all started with just that kind of tiny first version that wow. wasn't even actually a legit app, uh, just showing that to a coach and the coach saying, yeah, if you build this, it'd be useful. Um, and that giving us enough confidence to go and actually invest in kind of building out the first uh, minimum viable product. What's kind of the the philosophy behind how you're approaching learning, especially in, we can start with that use case with the football team. Yeah. Um, I guess philosophy would be the right word or like what's the sure. theory behind the learning module type thing? Yeah. So this, this goes back actually to before I started Learn to Win, I was really interested in just the science of learning and the principles of what um, enables people to learn most effectively and had actually done some research with professors at the University of North Carolina when I was an undergrad to redesign how their classes were taught um, to use techniques that were uh, kind of educationally validated. So one big one is um, instead of passive learning, active learning is a lot more effective. So if you think about, you know, this is obvious in a lot of settings. If you want to learn how to ride a bike, like someone telling you a 20 minute lecture on how to ride a bike is a lot less effective than them saying, hey, well, first you have to balance on it and sit on it. Now let's try that. And yeah. you, know, you hop on the bike and you sort of get the balance. You're like, okay, great. The next step is to do X. Um, and so like, that's the way that in most everything people actually learn, um, you have to kind of actively engage in the learning process. Um, and yet most of the ways that like classrooms work, certainly, you know, large lecture courses and in higher ed, corporate training, um, as it turns out, sports team training is a lot of just a person up on a whiteboard drawing stuff out and then people taking notes and that's, you know, learning. But you really have to practice these things. And, and um, as we found, actually get feedback on it, get quizzed, have it be broken up into tiny little steps uh, to most effectively learn. So mm. um, that's kind of the philosophy is how can we, you know, take the subject matter expertise of a head coach and instead of them just um kind of lecturing for an hour to a, a player, could you say, all right, let's break this down into a very structured active learning experience. So we're going to, um, you know, show them a video of a play and then we're going to pause it and say, okay, what do you see? And they have to key in what they see. And then it's like, okay, that's correct. Uh, let's move on. What does that mean then for your pre-snap read? Are we going to change the read? Or are we going to keep it the same? And they have to answer that. And mm. then they get feedback, whether they're right or wrong. Um, and, and the secret sauce for us is we make it super easy for a coach to build that active learning experience um, so that instead of just, you know, writing up a, you know, a, a 200 page playbook and giving that to players and saying, Hey, go learn this. Um, they build everything out and learn to win. And the output is this like really beautiful sequence of active learning experiences to teach every key concept that the players need to know. Wow. 
it, the idea of going from passive to active is really um, huge. I mean, I know that for me, the example that came to mind when I was trying to think how I, how have I seen this in my life was uh, like driver's ed. You know, mm. what the typical driver's ed, you're like 80% in a trailer learning about the speed limit, learning about safe driving, whatever, and then maybe 20% in a car doing none of the things that you really talked about other than right. putting around, right? Yeah. And then yeah. in high school, we had uh, kind of a family friend kid pass away from, from an accident that my dad, who was a race car driver, was like, that was totally avoidable. Like that's a common mistake that drivers make, but they've never been in that situation. And he overcorrected and freaked out and it created this act. So him and his, his racing partner created a defensive driving school. Uh And it was the complete opposite where it was 80% on like behind the wheel of your car in a variety of scenarios with 20% at maybe 10% in a classroom talking about it. And I just remember like the impact it had on me was like, Oh, I walked away feeling way better. Like, I know, and they made you do it in your car, which is even better. Like, so instead of a random car, like bring your car, whatever it is, piece of crap or great, you need to learn what your car feels like going through stopping, turning, slick, spinning out, all that kind of stuff. Um, And it just makes me think of what you're developing. Like the way that the brain makes connections almost instinctively was so much faster when you're engaged than just trying to imagine what they're talking about. Is that, is that right? That's awesome. That's, that is super cool example. Yeah, I love it. I, I'd, I'd love to learn more about what your dad put together there because it seems like a perfect example, both of the active learning versus passive learning, um, but then also this kind of difference between developing skills versus just um, memorizing facts and figures. Like it yeah. sounds like in that class, you're really developing the skill of driving, um, which, you know, the, the skill of merging onto the interstate is very different from, you know, being able to answer, uh, on a written test, like, yes, I should speed up to, you know, close to the speed limit before attempting to merge or whatever it is on the on-ramp. It's like, you might intellectually know that, but intellectually knowing something versus being able to do it is very different. Absolutely. Um, And, and I mean, the one of the main things, one of the, I'd say two of the things that stood out the most, just as we're geeking out about learning modules, but one, the actual accident that happened that the kid's life was lost that he saw all the time was when you accidentally dropped two wheels off of the road. Like you're not paying attention and you're going 80 miles an hour or something. And oh no, I'm veering off the road. And they quickly just knee jerk, try to jerk back on the road, causes mm-hmm. you to fishtail, overcorrect and flip. And so yeah. they would literally make us drive with a constructor, an instructor next to us and intentionally veer off the road in this controlled setting and feel what it feels like to be like, oh no, we're in the grass, you know? And then they try to yeah. train you to uh, take your foot off the gas and slowly merge back on. And I was like, oh, and then they did mm-hmm. another one where they had you do, uh, they called it a, a chase, uh, a rabbit car and a chase car. So we're in two separate lanes. Mm. Rabbit car takes off and then the instructor's like, all right, your turn. And then the idea is you catch up to about where you'd be on the road if you were following someone like on, on a highway. Is that about the distance you're at? And they'd be like, yeah. And the lead car would randomly get told to slam on the brakes. And so you didn't know what was coming and you're watching for it too. Like I'm actively watching his brake lights. And as soon as you see it, you have to slam on your brakes and try not to slide past him, meaning like rear end him. Wow. And do it every time. You're like 15, 20 feet past the guy. And he's like, wow. so this is why we tell you to be two car lengths back. Like you overestimate how quickly you think you can slam on your brakes and react and you're paying attention right now, you know? And so That's there was amazing. just things like that that like you can't teach that. It's muscle memory. It's experiential knowledge that you're like, I'll never forget that, right? Um, I think part of the power probably in that, program is they they know 
the, the experts, your dad knows the, I don't know, 50 most common ways that you could have a really uh, bad traffic accident. Yeah. And they kind of have that, that situational knowledge that a novice like doesn't even know what they don't know. They, they don't realize that, you know, this is a situation that might lead to whatever, 10% of traffic fatalities like this particular instance. And so there's kind of that, that's one of the areas of last mile knowledge we think about where, yeah. um, you know, if you're to go back to the football analogy, like part of what separates uh, Tom Brady from a rookie is Tom Brady has that expertise of, you know, years and years of seeing so many different situational things that, you know, the rookie might know the basic X's and O's, but they don't know the like hyper specific nuances of, you know, if it's third and 12 and you're playing against this defensive coordinator, then they're usually going to blitz in this setting. And so yeah. because of that, I need to get the ball out, you know, half a second sooner uh, or else. And it's, it's these little nuances that, that often um, I think make the difference between like the true experts, the like expert performers, the, you know, top tier race car drivers, the like safest, you know, drivers on the road versus the, the novices who might have all the same book knowledge, but they don't have that last mile knowledge. So for, okay, so that makes sense then. So for the the program you're building out, you don't have to be, your company doesn't have to be the expert on the right. thing. You're giving them the capability to take their expertise, put it in a learnable, better uh, better format, but they're the ones that know what they want the people to learn and that kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. So that's, ah. we're very much a, a software platform that enables like the it. expert, whether it's a coach or it's a you know pilot instructor or it's a sales trainer or uh, you know, manager of a Chick-fil-A franchise, like they can take that, you know, last mile knowledge, whatever it is for their organization, uh, turn it into an active learning experience, deliver that to their people, and then look at data and analytics around what are people actually learning? What are they struggling with? Where should we focus our time to get the maximal improvement and performance? Dang. Can you give us some, just some fun use cases and examples across some of the, the industries, the football industry, it sounds like restaurants, things like that. Like how has it been applied? Yeah, yeah. So, so football, as I mentioned, we started in college, um, and then a fun one last year. The the LA Rams uh, are a customer, so they were using us in preparation for the Super Bowl. Wow. Um, so we were we were cheering them on, uh, and that was kind of a surreal, like pinch myself moment. That you know, three years prior, this has just been a, a slide deck that we were trying to convince somebody to use it, and then um, you know, cheering them on in the playoffs was a super cool experience. Um, so they, they were using us for kind of weekly game plans, pre-practice, post-practice, lots of, you know, quizzing. And, uh, and even though, you know, these guys are professionals, like there's still places where, you know, maybe a rookie is missing a certain concept or they're installing a whole new play before a game. And it's so much information. I mean, this is like, oh yeah, it's, it is every bit as complex as organic chemistry, like plus some, I mean, it's, it's insane, uh, sort of the, the capacity of these teams to learn, um, the second big area that we work with is the U.S. Department of Defense. So huh. our first use case was actually in pilot training for emergency procedures. So quite similar, uh, actually, to the um, defensive driving and different kind of emergency situation-based uh, training. But um, I've worked with the U.S. Air Force uh, for um, everything from emergency procedures for fighter pilots uh, to actually air traffic control training, maintenance training. Um, airfield driving safety protocols. Um, it's a lot around sort of preventing, you know, high impact, low frequency events where you, you know, if you have a new pilot and they don't have decades of experience, how can you um, quicken the learning curve so that they can learn from the expertise of the people who have seen, you know, 
every possible permutation of things that might go wrong on a certain aircraft. Mm. Uh, and then commercially, we uh, have been really used in a whole different bunch of different settings. Um, a big one for us has been training sales teams. That's another place where similar to sports, results matter. It's highly competitive. You know, your learning and preparation directly translates to your performance. And so um, say that a new product is coming to market and you have to train up a thousand sales reps on how to effectively talk about your product against your competitors and the specific nuances for why it's better for the pain points of the customer. You want to make sure that everybody is as ready to go as possible when that product launches so that you can go and, you know, outsell your competition. So mm. um, just like the, you know, the football playbook, there's like sales playbooks being built in Learn to Win. And we've got a bunch of customers using us in that use case. Um, you there... mentioned you're in Atlanta. So, you know, yeah. Chick-fil-A is another another customer. They do um, all of the drive-through employee training. Um, and uh, similar to a high-performance sports team, I mean, those guys are a well-oiled operation. It's like a Formula uh, One pit crew or something. It is. It's. I mean, they're they're literally trying to save sh- like seconds off of the amount of time because that that's millions of dollars, you know, in aggregate across uh, the the organization. So, um, so all they, the nuances. Are they using y'all software for that training? Exactly. So they they wow. uh, do you know similar actually to kind of. Um, professional football teams doing game film review. Like they analyze different situations of why does the drive-through get backed up and how might we have handled this better to get better throughput? And what are the things that individuals in different kind of positions within the the store can do to help accelerate um, the, the throughput of cars? So it's, it's, I don't want to share any of their, their secret sauce. Sure. It's sure. Like, yeah. You know, it's some, some real IP, but it's, uh, it's remarkable um, what they have, have figured out about all the different levers of how you can, um, serve customers better and faster. So is your software on the data collection side as well, or is it just on the, once we have the data, we know what le- we can decide what lessons we want to teach and, and put it through this software? Yeah, great question. So um, there's really three main components to it. The initial authoring of the learning content, um, the learning experience itself, and then the sort of analysis and insights engine. Um, which then kind of informs the new learning you want to do. So typically what we recommend is start with some sort of operational problem that you want to solve that either, you know, just because you're an expert, you know that it exists or you've seen the data that, I don't know, in in the Chick-fil-A example, if there's one store that's lagging behind all the others in terms of drive-through throughput, you might go and analyze, okay, what's going on here? And then if you have a hypothesis of, okay, it seems that people are missing this key piece of knowledge, let's develop some training to that concept. So it's, you know, when should we appropriately park a car instead of having them just sit in the drive-through lane? And if you then train everybody on that and then look at the data, did this improve the operational problem that we had identified? You can then say, okay, well, what's the next big problem that will create the next big boost in performance and develop training for that, roll it out, and then analyze the performance data. Um, So there's a lot of different models of how folks can use it. It could be initial onboarding of employees when they're first starting the job. It could be, you know, midway through uh, someone's career progression, you give them some targeted upskilling. Um, It could even be a tool that you use just as like regular uh, team meeting planning where you try to identify the biggest gaps and fill it through targeted training. So there's a lot of flexibility in in how organizations choose to use it. Um, But a lot of times it starts with that, you know, what's the performance gap that we want to try and fix? And then what's the last mile knowledge we need to apply to that performance gap to enable everybody to perform like our top performers. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm curious on just some of the elements that you all build in. Like, for instance, is I know this is this is generally just a question on the latest thinking on this. Is there merit to gamification? Is that the idea that you know we're trying to find the motivators of what makes somebody want to play video games for eight hours? And could we translate yeah. that to learning outside of that? And sure. I'm just curious where is like, is that part of it? Is that only work for some people, not everybody? Like talk to me yeah, about that. Yeah, I think uh so this is where we get probably in some of the like philosophies or um you know, different opinions rather than necessarily being like a, a true scientific uh, statement on it. But I, I do think, you know, for learning to happen, engagement has to be there. So you somehow have to engage your learners. Um, if somebody's not engaged, and this gets back to the active versus passive piece, like there's there's good research that students listening to a lecture have the same brainwave activity as as people watching TV. Uh, mm. And so it's, you know, you're, you're probably not really that actively engaged if you're just listening to a lecture or you're watching a video or something else. So, you know, one way to engage people is to actually um, kind of prompt them to engage, like by asking a question or by saying, hey, you try that. You, you, you know, what, what would you answer in this situation? Um, another way to kind of engage them is to engage some sort of motivational aspects. Um, I think some really interesting research around this is uh, BJ Fogg and the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford. Um, kind of look at different aspects of how do you create lasting behavior change for people? And, you know, motivation is a factor, skill is a factor, reward is a factor. Um, and so you do want to think about those ingredients together of, you know, is the reason the person isn't learning because they're not motivated, because they're not rewarded appropriately, because they don't have the right supports? Um, or is it some kind of combination of all of those? So yeah. my, my personal philosophy is, uh, gamification can be a little bit gimmicky if it's, um, you know, just trying to, you know, angry bird style, create like the little dopamine hit. And yeah. I don't think that's necessarily a great recipe for long-term lasting performance improvement. Yeah. Um, but it's really hard to get someone to, you know, learn something new if they don't have any motivation to do it at all. Um, which is part of where for us, like we've started in, um, industries and places where there's very high levels of intrinsic motivation to learn like sports teams are hyper competitive and yeah. they're scrutinized publicly by millions of people and a coach will do anything that he or she possibly can to give their team a leg up on saturday or sunday or you know whenever they play and so for us like saying hey we can improve how your team learns by 50 percent, and we can do it in twice you know try at twice the speed um like they're so motivated to try and improve but from the coaching staff to the players, to everybody else that like motivation is never really a factor with it. And yeah. That makes uh, sense. And so then we don't have to bring in any like added gimmicks of like, well, if you do your training, then you, you know, get like 20 bonus points, which you can spend for, uh, you know, an Amazon <laughs> gift card or something like right, we, right. we don't really have to do that because they already are like doing everything they possibly can to want to learn. Um, they just haven't had the tools that have made it like, really easy and seamless um, or in some cases just don't have the like the prior um, I guess the prior knowledge of what good study practices look like in the first place where yeah um, you know if you if you went to a great prep school or you went to like a prestigious university you probably got taught how to learn um, but in a lot of cases like it's not intuitive it's not obvious how to structure your own learning in an optimal way um, and that's part of what learn to win does for both for a coach of, Hey, here's a way to make this a more effective learning experience, but also for the, you know, the player or the individual. 
um, here's a way for you to study really effectively on your own. I love that. Are there any just kind of quick, simple tips for any of us that didn't go to Stanford that are probably <laughs> not approaching learning, whether it's like, Hey, I want to learn new languages here. Or I want to learn this skill this year. Like, um, obviously for any of the big solutions, we need to come to you and your, your, your program for that, but just right. for the average listener, like how should I think about learning differently in my own life? Yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely, definitely come to learn to win. Uh, that's, that's the first solution, but I mean, the general principles are extensible to a lot of places. So I think, um, you know, learning is active, uh, you know, not, not really passive. Um, learning takes effort. So like if you're just kind of sitting, staring at a piece of paper, you're probably not going to learn whatever you're looking at, but instead quizzing yourself constantly on it would be one way to retain. So that's definitely the case with, with languages. Uh, there's an interesting study that if you ask people just to um, read a list of vocab words and then take a quiz on it, they perform a lot worse than someone where you give them uh, a list and then you you turn over that list and say, okay, try to write down that whole thing that you just saw. So it's kind of this quizzing huh. and then they have to do the actual assessment. The people who had to do the active recall were like disproportionately better at retaining that knowledge than the people who just read something. Wow. Um, so, so active versus passive, I think you actually have to practice it and it takes effort to learn. Um, trying to state, take like frequent low stakes um, uh, effort. So rather than, you know, study for eight weeks and then take an exam, if you're taking like a quiz every week on something, that's going to lead to an increase in performance. Um, so kind of frequent low stakes assessment is another design principle. Um, I would say just in time feedback. This is one that uh, like getting feedback kind of instantaneously after you've done something to then incorporate it in the next practice rep is a lot more valuable than, you know, spending six months working in a job and then having a one-time performance review. Yeah. Uh, and so there's, you know, if you think about again, Tom Brady, Tom Brady wouldn't be Tom Brady if he didn't have a coach and teammates who are constantly giving him feedback, you know, after each play, after each possession, analyzing, what do I do differently? If Tom Brady had like a once annual performance review, you know, right. it, it, or even it if he waited would, until work. after the game, like you see them as yeah. soon as the offense is off the field, every quarterback is looking, discussing, looking at the, at the iPad, you know, like they don't even wait yeah. after the game to get feedback. Totally. Yeah. So I see, I see the opposite too. Like I heard, I was talking about this recently. I'm glad you brought it up. The idea of when to help somebody is really important. Like when does, mm -hmm. let's say you're a teacher, an instructor, a coach, whatever, like when do you offer help? And they were mm -hmm. saying mm -hmm. it's after the meaningful struggle is the most mm -hmm. important for like, you know, recall or learning or whatever. And so you could wait too late, like you're talking about in business. Yeah. They usually once a, once a year and it's usually when you're in trouble, like it's either Correct. once a year and it's too late or you're in trouble and it's too late to some degree, uh, or we rescue too early. Like we're just always in there. Like, let me, let me save you from that discomfort of not knowing how to do that. Let me hold your hand Certainly. versus like, no, 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 we've given you enough, like go and do it. And then let's talk about how it went and then go and do it. And let's talk about how it went. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I love that. It's uh, the, the notion of the appropriate amount of struggle. There's like this idea called the zone of proximal development, where if, you know, if this circle is kind of your comfort zone and then this is like the, you know, challenge zone around it, you basically want to be like 15% outside of your comfort zone is the optimal amount to kind of maximize your learning gains without you getting like super intimidated and shut down yep. uh, by something or that's super like twice. bored. Yeah, or super bored. So the, um, 
the zone of proximal development. And I think you pair that with something where it's like opportunities for low stakes practice where like you actually can fail and it's okay. Um, and, uh, cause if you're, if you're fearful or you have kind of a fight or flight response mm -hmm. going on, that's not a great condition to actually be learning. Um, like this is something we actually see in sports teams where it's like, there's sometimes a culture of, you know, screaming at people if they make a mistake. And I, I always kind of cringe when I see that where it's like, okay, sometimes there's a motivational issue in which case yelling at someone might be the solution. But if it's actually a learning issue where they don't actually know what they're supposed to be doing, like yelling at them and increasing the pressure is actually going to decrease their learning in that situation. Yeah. So there's, I think it depends a lot on, you know, really being thoughtful about what's the gap that exists here. And is it a motivational intervention? Is it a knowledge intervention? Is it a practice intervention that, that needs to happen to kind of close that gap? Yeah, I love that idea of just 15% beyond. I've heard, I think it was like in, in uh, you know, flow research, the idea of like, how do you get into a flow state? It's mm -hmm. they're talking about the idea of just manageable challenges where it's like you're kind of on the edge of your seat because it's like, oh, I've got to really concentrate because it's just outside my comfort zone, but yep. it's manageable. I think I can do it versus like mm -hmm. you said, I can't, there's no way. I can't do this. This is too hard and you give up. Um, I love that. I also am curious about duration of focus. I think it came from Stanford. I remember seeing some study where they were, they were talking about like memory retention in terms of like focus and breaks. And they were saying like, Hey, for about two hours, you can really do well at focus and memory retention. But after that, it's kind of like a, uh, a diminishing return. Yep. Versus, and then they said, but if you take like a 15 minute, 20 minute break, you know, you can get back to pretty high optimal memory retention for another spurt of time. Talk to me about that. Is that true? Is that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the attention span research, uh, is interesting. It, it's for, for listening to something passively again. Um, I've actually seen recent data. It's about seven minutes that you're kind of like, you could be pretty focused. At least the, the average human, some people seem to have, you know, attention spans of, uh, of longer or shorter, but you know, seven minutes or so, um, for just listening and trying to uh, pay attention is, is a decent benchmark. And so, um, when we think about our content design and delivery, we actually try to break down the learning sessions into like three to five minutes. Oh, and, cool. and you could do that if you're super focused on just like one concept. Um, if you're trying to teach the entirety of, you know, the Rams offense, you're not going to cover that in three to five minutes. But if you're just teaching one play against one defensive scheme, you can cover that pretty quickly. And so by making it these kind of bite-sized lessons, one, it, it increases the accessibility of it. If you're standing in line at Chipotle and, you know, you pull out your phone, you can do a, a full learning session in that amount of time. Um, but then it also helps to keep people engaged um, in the learning experience rather than it being this sort of like endless exactly. drone where they're likely to lose focus. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think it's, it's a very helpful principle. And then the other piece you can do is if you're able to break down the learning into those tiny chunks, um, you know, the structure itself is valuable because mm -hmm. our, our brains interpret things not as just like independent pieces of information, but there's this concept of metacognitive scaffolding, where if I were to tell you, you know, hey, Drew, I'm going to teach you like the five steps of how to ride your bike. Okay. And like, here's the five steps. And okay, now I'm going to teach you the first step. Okay. Now we covered the first step. Now we're going to the second step. The fact that you have that scaffold mm. of this is how it all fits together actually helps your brain um, structure the knowledge and retain the knowledge because you're not asking yourself the question of like, wait, why in the world is he jumping from pedaling to, you know, right. steering and then back to like, I don't get it. 
what's going on. And, and if you're asking yourself that question, because you don't have that structure, your brain is missing opportunities to learn. Um, so wow. part of it is just the, it's the duration of the learning, but it's also the structure of the learning uh, that we think is really valuable. And that's why we've landed on this sort of three to five minute micro learning lesson is what we call it. But um, it, it gets the accessibility, the retention, and then also the, the scaffolding. I love that idea of scaffolding, like that you can kind of build things on top of, and it makes me think of like a map of meaning. They're like, I need mm -hmm. to know where this is in my mental model. Like, yep. how do these play together? And once I do, I'm going to have a hard time forgetting it versus yep. words, just random words that I'm taking in and trying to memorize. Uh, is that a little bit of what you're saying? Like it just, I sure. can grab it and hold on to it easier and access it easier. Yep. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, and I, I love the use of the term map. Um, there's another really interesting field of research around expertise and what separates like a, a master from a novice in different fields. So one example I could give you is, um, chess masters have, uh, this like very expert encoding of chess boards that happens in their brain that is um, essentially like a, a, a map of the entire board without having to actually know um, where every single piece is. So yeah. uh, like, and what they did is they basically had, had a group of novice chess players, a group of master chess players. They showed them, you know, for, I don't know, five seconds, a chess board. And then they said, um, try to recreate that board. And so the masters were dramatically better than the novices at recreating the entire board with the same amount of time to look at it. Something like, I don't know, three times as likely to be able to perfectly place every piece. But interestingly, in some situations, they showed the masters and the novices a board that would be um, impossible to actually create in a gameplay. So somehow the configuration, you couldn't actually move the pieces to be in that situation in a real game. Yeah, And in, in the ones that weren't authentic to a real game situation, the masters and the novices were exactly the same. <laughs> and so it's kind of this, like, they were able to encode like real images of actual chess games because they have some sort of neural pathway that's already been built of this, like, you know, map of meaning, as you describe it, where like this means something in a certain situation and yeah. it triggers, you know, some piece of memory. Instinctual stuff. Yeah, unless it's unless it's not a real map. If it's like a fake wow. map, a fake game, they can't actually remember it. So it's not that they're better just visually at like placing every piece. It's there's there's some sort of underlying schema that gives that image meaning that the the masters have that the novices don't. That is so interesting. Got it. Makes me even think about like when you lose your map of meaning in life, how difficult it is that yeah. when you have some underlying way of seeing the world and it gets challenged for the first time, it's gone. You're like now everything feels random and I don't know how to play with the pieces. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally, um, totally. Very interesting. Man, so on the business side, I know we've only got a little bit of time left here, but on the business side, what was the most challenging part about getting this out there and, and out to the market and adopted? Mm, good question. So many, so many challenges. Um, I think uh, the, I mean, starting a company is such a weird experience because you kind of have you know this vicious cycle of you need you know you need money to build product and you need products to attract customers and you need you know customers to convince investors that they should give you money and so it's like how do you which comes first short circuit that circle <laughs> somehow yeah um and so i mean that we probably could have just been in that sort of cycle of not succeeding in any of them 
you know, for a long time. And, and our hack was, could we get, you know, enough reputable programs to say, yes, if you built this, we would use it to then take that kind of signal of interest to uh, kind of our first investors who then helped us build a very rudimentary product, which then we could bring to customers to help build on that excitement. And then we kind of slowly started breaking that cycle. Um, so I think that just inherent challenge, and, and I think the advice I'd give for others that might face that challenge is like, take a, you know, zero cost, no code, like vision of your potential products to a person whose opinion you respect and would matter, like whether mm. it's a potential customer, potential investor, potential co-founder, like, and, and use that to sort of take it out of your brain, get it out into the real world where they can see it, they can kind of visualize the concept um, to try and sort of break that vicious cycle. Um, I think a second piece that we found is uh, my general feeling is like people, there's a small subset of people that want to be like early adopters and innovators. Um, but I think a much larger group of people don't want to be like a guinea pig. And they're kind of more afraid of being like the first person to try something totally new. And so um, I think, you know, a challenge that we faced often when like breaking into a new market um, is, you know, if you don't have any reference customers in that industry, yeah. So for example, we, we work with a lot of pharma sales teams at this point, we have uh, nine pharma sales customers, uh, but getting that first one was so challenging because they were like, well, have you done anything in pharma? I was like, no, well, we've done stuff in the NFL, we've done stuff in you know, government and like, here's the evidence that the learning works better. And we have all these security controls that we've done with the, the national security work. So it's safe and it's going to be, you know, kept proprietary, but they're kind of like, I don't know, like our industry is different. And we have a whole different set of needs and right. we're a massive company and we have, you know, all these regulatory issues. And so there's so many reasons why not to do it that like you kind of have to find someone who's willing to take that leap of faith. And then once we demonstrate a ton of value, then you can say, Hey, look, they have this amazing experience and they're a company just like you. In fact, they compete with you. And maybe you're going to fall behind if you're not, you know, leveraging the new technology to then take it kind of horizontally across an industry. But how did um, you get, how did you get those first adopters? Was it just, you found, you kept trying to you found the one willing to take a chance or was there a way that you found to overcome that kind of objection of like, I don't want to be the first, you know, like they, I think what's the, what's the thing where they say no one ever got fired for hiring Microsoft. Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. like, yeah. I'm not gonna take a chance. I don't know. I don't want to get fired if I take a chance on you and it's, it's not good. Right. How did you overcome yeah. and get those first early adopters? So the, the thing that worked well for us in each of the different markets is someone who like either knew us, my co-founder or me personally trusted us uh, or knew one of our investors really well and trusted them um, to some level of just uh, baseline trust that we weren't just a fly by night operation and we weren't going to, um, you know, let, let them down. Um, so that's one way to do it. I think the other way is to find someone who has such an acute pain point that they like urgently need solved. Uh, like the analogy I've heard is, you know, if your hair is on fire and someone gives you a brick, like you're going to try and put out the, you know, the hair on fire with a brick, um, even if the brick is not the right product for, you know, putting out that, that pain. So um, in some cases it's just leveraging the personal trust. And then in other cases, it's pinpointing like who is the most extreme, uh, you know, uh, who, who is feeling this problem so acutely um, that they would be willing to, you know, take a flyer, uh, on this new, new company. I love that, man. This has been a fascinating conversation. I just want to end with, uh, kind of up to date. What's the, 
what's the challenge that you all are tackling now as a company and what's the excite what's the most the thing that's got you most excited for the future coming up so the challenge we're tackling now um so we're in a pretty high growth phase right now so we raised uh, about 14 million dollars and are you know growing about 3x year over year so um a, a challenge for me is just how do we balance you know the desire to move as fast as possible and sort of capture the market uh with not getting out over our skis and not um you know spending too much or increasing burn too much so kind of that tension of like the the hyper growth you know early stage software uh companies is one that um as a first time founder I'm grappling with but but fortunate to have incredible investors and advisors that can coach me through um how to think about those trade offs um an opportunity, I mean, I think something that like, I, I see so much potential for these ideas of how do you actually build transformative learning into a technology product and how can you leverage the science of how people learn and the data that you generate from it to mm -hmm. fundamentally accelerate and improve how people learn, how they perform. Um, and I think we're really just hitting the tip of the iceberg of the potential applications of those ideas um, because, you know, even like great universities don't practice this in a super effective way. Like, yeah. like the, you know, the large lecture class is still the predominant mode of instruction at most universities, even elite ones. And the science shows that there's so much better ways to learn uh, than doing that. And so I think just the opportunity that I see is like pretty much every organization in the world, I think, you know, fundamentally as a learning organization, they have to learn something, teach something, do something to perform and I think there's so much unrealized potential for um, for organizations. And if we're able to solve that problem and capture that opportunity, it just it seems the the possibilities are endless. Heck yeah. Well, if someone is listening to this and wants to find out more about how their organization or company could utilize this, where do we send them? Yeah, so www.learntowin.com. So that's just written out L-E-A-R-N-T-O-W-I-N.com. Uh, we have a bunch of case studies and examples across all the different industries we're in. Um, but uh, yeah, we'd love for them to, to go there or they can obviously reach out to me uh, over email or uh, LinkedIn. Uh, Andrew Powell, Learn to Win, uh, would, would love to connect. Heck yeah. Awesome, Andrew. This has been fantastic, man. I'm excited about what you're creating as someone that's kind of in the learning and development space often, this is huge. And I'm so excited to see what you all are doing and where this thing goes. So I appreciate your time today and for sharing your story with us. Thanks, sir. Really appreciate it. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.